Welcome to this podcast from the October 9, 2012 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast is from the first session, which included presentations and discussions about findings from the Knight Commission Competitive Research Grant Initiative. Presentations in order are Trust, Accountability, and Integrity, Board Responsibilities for Intercollegiate Athletics, presented by John Castine, President Emeritus of the University of Virginia, and Rick Ligon, President, Association of Governing Boards of Colleges and Universities. Following a problematic yet predictable path, the unsustainable nature of the intercollegiate athletics system, presented by John Cheslock, Director, Center for the Study of Higher Education, Pennsylvania State University, and de-escalation of commitment among Division I athletic departments, presented by Adrian Boucher, Warren Clinic Endowed Professor of Sport Administration, University of Tulsa, and Michael Hutchison, Assistant Professor of Sport Commerce at the University of Memphis. The session begins with an introduction by William Britt Kerwin, Chancellor of the University System of Maryland and Co-Chair of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This session lasts approximately 1 hour and 42 minutes. For more information on the Knight Commission and to download the full research reports presented at this session, please visit knightcommission.org. I want to welcome everyone to this uh, session where we have uh, our presenters, uh, the media, and other guests, where we have an opportunity to hear the results of uh, six research projects that have been funded uh, by the Knight uh, Commission grants. Uh, we uh, want to thank the Knight Foundation for uh, providing the funds uh, for these projects. And also, I want to acknowledge and thank Welch Suggs, who uh, oversaw the, um, uh, the, the, provided the support and oversaw the, the process. Uh, Welsh, we thank you very much for, for your uh, good work. Um, Carol Cartwright chaired uh, the uh, Commission's uh, Research Grants Initiative. And um, just to set the stage for this morning's session, Carol, I want you to, if you would, say a few words about uh, how this got organized. Thanks, Britt. In uh, May of 2011, the Knight Commission announced a new initiative to fund research on policy issues in college sports. Uh, the intention was to enhance the Commission's long-standing legacy of recommending policy changes to improve the management and integrity of big-time college athletics. We were really pleased with the interest that was shown in this research initiative, the number of proposals that we received, and the substantial nature of those proposals from a policy standpoint, from experienced scholars uh, who are developing important research agendas in this field. Uh, we did an independent review. Our committee members each read all the proposals and ranked them according to a set of criteria we had developed. And as we came together to compare notes, it was clear that there was very strong consensus about the projects that we should be supporting. Six projects were selected to receive grants, totaling about $100,000 over all of them. The commission believed that these projects would produce important new knowledge and insights 
and in particular some real world orientation and advice to leaders in college athletics to address the ethical, commercial, and academic challenges uh, that they face in college sports. So the six reports are completed and they're here today, the researchers are here today to report their findings. We've grouped them for today's sessions in ways that we believe will be helpful due to the overlapping and complementary nature of the work, the ideas that have emerged, and their findings. All of the reports, as well as summaries of the reports, are available on the Knight Commission's website. So we thank the presenters for their work on these projects over the past year, and look forward to hearing about their findings today. Britt, I think you're going to yes. help us see how we're going to do this. Okay, Carol, thank you very much. Uh, the, the plan this morning is uh, to hear uh, three research projects uh, in this first session. Uh, then we'll have a break, and we'll hear the second three uh, uh, project uh, reports on the second three uh, projects. We're, what we've done is, uh, in this first uh, session, uh, we've grouped the three that have some overlapping themes. So the idea is that each, uh, each of the presenters uh, will uh, spend 15 to 20 minutes describing the results of their <coughs> research, and we'll hear from each of the three presenter, uh, uh, presenters, uh, and then we'll hold our questions till they've all three finished. Um, and uh, during the, this session, uh, questions will be limited to members of the commission, but uh, for our friends in the media and others, uh, the presenters will be available uh, after the session to um, uh, respond to any questions that uh, others may, may have. Um, now, uh, we are very uh, pleased by the uh, quality of the, uh, the presenters and uh, their expertise, uh, and we have their bios uh, in the um, in in the uh, your books. Uh, so I'm going to avoid the temptation to uh, introduce each of them and uh, talk about uh, their impressive uh, resumes. Uh, so, uh, in the interest of time, we'd want to move just straight to the presentations. And uh, with that, I'm going to uh, call first on uh, John Castine and Rick, Le Rick Legon. Rick is, of course, the president of AGB, and uh, John is president emeritus of the University of Virginia. Their re uh, research study was entitled Trust, Accountability, and Integrity, Board Responsibilities for Intercollegiate Athletics. So John and Rick, uh, the floor is yours. Let me mention everyone should press the button, both commission members and presenters, because we are recording uh, this session. And uh, just remember, before you talk, to press your button. The red light will tell you you're on. Good. Thanks, uh, Thanks, Britt. Uh, AGB is very pleased to have been uh, asked to conduct a study and offer recommendations about board oversight of intercollegiate athletics. Uh, as part of this uh, research initiative on the part of the, uh, the Knight Commission. And most of you are familiar with AGB and its mission. Since 1921, our association, which serves about 1,300 uh, governing uh, boards and 36,000 individual presidents, chief executive officers, and 
individual uh, board members, has served to protect and strengthen this country's governance structure, which is uh, based upon uh, independent boards and independent citizens uh, overseeing their institutions and, and systems. Now, since the Knight Commission's earliest encouragement that AGB participate in this conversation about the appropriate engagement of governing boards in intercollegiate sports, we've been urging, uh, that is, AGB has been urging presidents and chancellors and board members to establish appropriate policies and practices for collaborative oversight. And today, I think we'd all agree that that oversight is perhaps even more essential uh, than during the uh, history of the Commission itself. AGB's own Board of Directors issued the Association's first statement on Board Oversight of Intercollegiate Sports back in 2004. It was refined and updated uh, twice more, and most recently in 2009, and the Commission was good enough to uh, recognize that uh, statement when it was uh, produced. Uh, we believe that our new report, Trust, Integrity, and Accountability, which each member of the Commission has received, provides a useful snapshot of how boards are actually performing uh, in this area of their fiduciary responsibilities. And this was based on a survey of Division I presidents, chancellors, and board chairs. Our study involved a gap analysis that compared actual practice to the best practices that were recommended in the AGB 2009 uh, statement. While our current findings indicate that there is actually much to be pleased with and to champion on the part of board engagement in this important area, uh, there were also some red flags uh, that the project team and our distinguished panel of advisors uh, believe needed further attention and comment. And while we note in the report that much of our work did take, pl did take place while the tragedy at Penn State was unfolding and we recognized in the report the relationship of governance to that crisis. Our recommendations weren't specifically directed to that situation. The findings and related recommendations that John will detail support our report's call for an appropriate level of oversight in this often difficult area of institutional control. Board members as their institution's fiduciaries cannot limit their ultimate authority in a manner that excludes them from active engagement and the oversight of college sports. Athletics are too much a part of how many Americans view higher education. The costs associated are too significant, and the risks associated are too great. Now, what the report doesn't suggest is that boards manage those areas of intercollegiate sports that should be rightfully and clearly delegated to chief executives and, and uh, administration. But what it does urge is that board governance and policy leadership does not stop at the water's edge of intercollegiate sports. Boards have no option when it comes to an appropriate application of their responsibilities. What we think our report really is about is accountability and fiduciary responsibilities well applied. That is the board's duty of trust that defines a board's policy role on behalf of the system or institution that it's students, uh, and, and students and other stakeholders. We realize that not everyone is going to agree with all of our recommendations. I don't think everyone agreed with the Knight Commission's most recent report either. But change in athletics policy setting, control and oversight must be given serious consideration by institutions, by systems, 
by conferences and by the NCAA. And as we say in the report, if we don't do this, others will do it for us. With that introduction, let me invite John, to, uh, who served as our project director, and we couldn't have had a better project director, to dig a bit deeper and to share the specific recommendations of our report. Thanks, Rick. Rick has covered why this, uh, why this topic and this project matter to governance in colleges and universities. We did not set out to conduct our work in a period of intense scrutiny of how boards uh, deal with their responsibilities for athletics. But we did work against the background of a, obviously a rapidly changing national awareness of that. Uh, we didn't set out to investigate any single institution's misdeeds, and the report will not do that for you. The report really addresses the question how boards carry out their responsibilities, which are fiduciary, they're entrusted with someone else's assets, which are obligations having to do with compliance with state laws, with federal law, uh, and certainly with NCAA and related uh, regulations. We carried out our work in three segments. They overlapped. One was uh, the survey of Division I presidents and board chairs. We wanted to try to get various perspectives on common questions, and I'll talk about their perspectives in a moment. Second. We assembled an advisory group drawn from the same general population, presidents, board chairs, and third, we consulted people who have established themselves as experts uh, in the general field of governance and athletics. Uh, personal interviews, group meetings, uh, many telephone calls, conference calls, and so on, in addition to the, the uh, development of the survey instrument, the testing of it, and the use of it in the field. Uh, some highlights of what turns up in the survey and some recommendations of how the report can be used to improve governance involving athletics. What we found was that there is a continuing need for boards to understand that they do have a policy role. Uh, some of the, the current press about this makes very clear that institutions as a whole, which is to say their boards as corporate entities, face liability when the systems of regulation and law are not properly observed within the institution. So there was, in a sense, something going on during this project that made it timely for the people who we, saw, we see as our proper audience. We investigated eight areas of responsibilities by way of a, a fairly simple gap analysis. What's good practice? What's actually done? What's the deviation from good practice? How can we address that? How can we inform boards and inform the process of teaching uh, education for board members from the beginning all the way through their service in such a way as to make uh, intercollegiate athletics a more integrated and effective part uh, and frankly a more uh, regulatory compliant part of uh, institutional cultures. 143 one division one presidents took part. Uh, they were fairly even in representing FBC, FCS, and the no football institutions. The gap analysis shows that most, many boards do things right. Uh, on the other hand, they're not the ones who wind up on page one. Uh, or those who do not require strict compliance with rules, accountability, on the part of their staff members and their boosters and so on, wind up on page one because of their larger responsibility for their institutions. Uh, almost all reported that athletics programs do contribute in various good ways to their institutions that by and large athletics programs are well integrated into their organizational structure, their administration. 
that board members do in general respect the authority that's delegated to their presidents and those who report to their presidents, and that by and large board members do not interfere. That's good. That has to do with the integrity of the system of institutional control. Everybody knows about the extreme abuses, whether current or in prior times. The stories are part of the, the common folklore of higher education. What we tried to do was focus on how to enable people who do their jobs generally well, how to enable them to do their jobs at a much higher level of, of accountability and performance. Some of the gaps. Uh, only half of the boards represented in the survey have comprehensive board policies on athletics that match in their general contents the one that was recommended to them in the 2009 AGB Good Practices Report. So we start with the fact that while many are, in fact, uh, doing well, not all have the type of policy competence that, by and large, we expect of citizen boards acting as trustees for the asset that the college or university is. Half reported that their boards fulfill their responsibilities for overseeing athletics very well. Unhappily, that means that the other half said that their board systems need improvement, that, in fact, the board is not actively engaged in the range of policy obligations required by our system. And while almost every college and university offers camps for minor children, to take one matter that obviously is current in all of our minds, only about half had at the time of the survey policies having to do with the well-being or protection of those children while on the campus or under the, the general supervision of campus personnel. With regard to finance, uh, as we know, most athletics programs are not self-supporting. We found also that many boards don't really know that the, uh, the problem is that boards do not receive the best financial data on the separable performance of athletics. Uh, the, the customary income expenditure tables are not uniform in content. They're not always available. Uh, so revenues and expenditures for athletics are often mysterious areas uh, for board members. The well-being of student-athletes, APR, uh, the, the simple national standard has become the common indicator for board oversight. Eighty-four percent of our boards appear or report that they receive that information. Only about a third, however, are seeing other indicators that matter. For example, what academic majors their athletes are pursuing, a current issue in the press. Uh, the rate of transfer in and out of their programs and what that implies about the consistency of the program across the institution and in carrying out best practices. And then other indicators, only about a third are receiving information about, about uh, the time demands that are made on student athletes and on how those time demands relate to the overall commitment of time that students who are athletes have to, to make. Compliance reporting. Uh, I think it's, it's common sense that in a, a function as important as athletics, boards ought to read and be well informed about compliance reports. Uh, the truth is that only about 59% reported that they had, had seen, that their board members had seen the reports, had read them. Uh, and only about 64% are receiving the financials that are submitted by their institutions to the NCAA. The fiduciary obligations of trustees, of board members, are on parade when the financial reports are made. And to have a third or so not even see those reports seemed to us to be an indication that we haven't really gotten the message through in the larger sense for the whole system. Bad behavior on the part of board members is obviously rare. Uh, 
On the other hand, only about 35% of our boards are receiving sufficient information to pre prepare them very well with regard to the NCAA rules that apply to them. Not the detailed rules of where you draw the yard lines in a given sport, but the rules that apply to trustees themselves. Only about a third are actually seeing the rules and understanding the very, the very simple principles of institutional control that are built into the NCAA uh, standards. Our recommendations. Uh, here we, we certainly used the survey data, certainly used our advisory committee. We also sought advice from people who have established their own reputations in the field. Uh, first recommendation, simply to acknowledge what's true. Athletics is not an island. Uh, the governing board is ultimately accountable, and accountability in the current press reports is a fairly strict kind of accountability. Accountability involving fines, for example. The board is ultimately accountable for athletics policy and oversight, that is, for the accountability of those who report to the board, often through the president. And board members have an obligation to, to carry out, to fulfill their fiduciary obligations. Simply because board members are, by definition, trustees of somebody else's assets. Something is entrusted to trustees, and those tr they have an obligation to see to it that it's, it's properly uh, protected, cared for, and so on. For board members to do what they have to do, policies have to be informed. There has to be a process of education that lets board members understand what the expectations are, know what best practice is, use best practice techniques in developing policy, in, in developing standards of accountability for presidents or ADs, or whatever. And the delegation that has to occur is delegation on the front end, not after something has gone wrong and the, the uh, institution has to scramble. It obviously also requires that the relationship between president and board be a transparent relationship. The board needs to know when the institution has a major violation. The board needs to know when the institution is making a change in its programs that have to do with the board's capacity to, to carry out its policies. Second, in that context, the board should act decisively to uphold the integrity of the academic program and its alignment with the institution's academic mission. This is, in a sense, Knight Commission doctrine, so it's nothing new to you. But the truth is that the alignment of the two functions is often quite imperfect, especially when athletics is off on the edge in the hands of, let's, let's say, boosters who happen to be board members, rather than being at front and center when the institution's overall well-being is discussed and, and carried out. We're arguing to treat athletics as one would any other responsible unit of the institution. Academic units, student affairs, whatever units one thinks about, athletics ought to be given the same basic consideration in the board's policy making and demands for accountability. We got interested in how few boards are by public report, newspaper reports, informed in advance and in some sense engaged in major decisions about the alignment of conferences. Not only which conferences a given institution belongs to or doesn't belong to, but also what other institutions come into the conference. Now one can argue that information or knowledge is not evenly distributed among all the players who might look at alignments, but it's hard to argue that the fiduciaries with ultimate accountability should not themselves have a role of some kind, a defined and pu publicly acknowledged kind, in making decisions as large as that. 
and we're suggesting a best practice. We're suggesting that boards should annually undergo a public process of board education about academic compl uh, athletics compliance and about practice within their own institutions. And that the board chair ought to endorse in public an annual statement to the effect that the board is fully compliant. And the, the, we're suggesting that the conferences ought to be the repositories of those pledges of, first of all, self-education and second, self-scrutiny and the determination that the board, the board chair uh, has made about the integrity of the program. That's based on an ACC model, which many of you will know. We were struck by the fact that we couldn't find another case of that kind of public education, public compliance, public certification. We think that it serves to educate the community who watch the board, as well as the board itself. And we think that it sends good signals to athletics. Third recommendation, board must educate itself about its policy role or obligations and about the process of overseeing intercollegiate athletics. Starts with orientation, carries through regularly. It should not be a once-in-a-lifetime event that board members learn about the fiduciary obligations of board members. I went to one of the corporate board summit sessions in New York last week for training in connection with a public corporation of which I'm a director. I've been a, a public corporation director for 30, 30 years. I was struck by how much I learned that differs from last year's program on the same topic, and yet by the fact that the range of variables was only seven or eight integers in a series, that the process of change is very rapid, that one has to pay attention to current cases and understand how they might apply to, to more general practice and so on. The same thing applies to the governance of our colleges and universities, and emphatically to governance as it involves athletics. That's the basis of the argument that we're making on that point. Then finally, uh, just an observation. We were struck by the difference between the best practice and common practice in boards that govern systems and best practice and common practice in boards that govern single institutions. Many system boards do not have systems of board engagement for purposes of accountability with their, their unit presidents, the presidents of individual campuses. Some don't want that, see themselves as operating in a different climate. But we could not find a normative body of literature addressing that reality. And we suspect that on both sides, but certainly on the sides of the large systems, where there's also not much uh, consistency from one system to another, there is a vast body of puzzlement about what is good practice, what ought to be done. And we believe that the process of board education that we're describing should have the effect of improving that. Uh, Britt, that completes our summary of what we've done. John and Rick, thank you very much. Uh, lots of questions, but uh, we're going to move through the other two uh, presenters and, and, and then come back to you. Uh, we're next going to hear from John Cheslock, who is director of the Center for the Study of Higher Education at Penn State University. And um, his project is entitled Following a Problematic Yet Predictable Path, the Unsustainable Nature of the Intercollegiate Athletics System. So, John, you're... You're on. It's a pleasure to be in front of you today. My work is joint with David Knight, a recent graduate of Penn State who is currently in Australia on a postdoc at the University of Queensland. And Dave and I want to advance your work, which then prompts the question, what is your work as the Knight Commission, right? And a central part of your work in recent years has been this question of financial sustainability. And I commend you for taking on that topic as it is a daunting one, as you could tell me much better than I could tell you. 
when you think about financial sustainability, you must contemplate the large number of factors that contribute to financial challenges in intercollegiate athletics. Each one of those factors are quite complex. And then after evaluating them, you then need to try to identify policy options that could perhaps improve financial sustainability. Mapping those challenges to policies and talking about those policies are complex. And then communicate those. And you have gone through that process. And um, other organizations um, will do that as well over time. And so when we think about how we could help you and others in these sort of tasks, we tap in to the insight represented by this quote. Everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler, right? Um, and, right, there are, um, you know, when you think about all those factors and you do that, what we have done in our work is we have tried to identify a number of the key factors, not all of them, but some really central factors to the financial sustainability challenge in intercollegiate athletics and make them as simple as possible, but not simpler. How simple could we make it? Six words, three concepts. We tried to get it down to five words, tried to get it down to two concepts, didn't work. Six words, three concepts. And what I'm going to do right now is walk you through the entire presentation, and then I'm going to go on and on in more detail after that. But let's go through the simple, coherent thing, right? Three concepts, right? Concept number one, diverging revenue, right? An awful lot of money, especially when we think in a longer time horizon, you know, 50 years, has come into the intercollegiate athletic system. More revenues have come, TV, uh, people have become more wealthy, new business practices, lots of money came in. The money that came into the intercollegiate athletic system was not spread out evenly across colleges and universities. A small set of elite athletic programs captured much of that revenue. So we have diverging revenues, right? So we have elite athletic programs capturing much of the revenue that came in the, into the athletic system from external sources, while a number of other athletic programs received very little. And of course, there's in-betweens, right? That's step one, diverging revenues. Step two, cascading expenditures, right? Those elite programs that received that large amount of revenues, they ended up spending those athletic revenues on athletics, right? And so ath high athletic revenues at the top turned into high athletic expenditures at the top. And those expenditures at the top cascaded down through a variety of forces, which I'll go into a little bit later, cascaded down so that when the elite institutions spent a lot, the less elite athletic programs also increased their spending. So that's the cascading expenditures part. Step three, ensuing subsidies. Right? So let's talk about these other programs down here. Their revenues didn't go up that much, but their expenditures did. Right? We have a lot of very, very smart people in the room. If revenues don't go up, but expenditures do, something has to fill that gap. We all know what fills that gap. Student fees, institutional subsidies. That's the ensuing subsidies. You've heard my whole story, but I like to talk, so I'll continue to go on. Let's, let's go into diverging revenues, okay? This is data from the USA Today, uh, the great service they've done in uh, uh, making a lot of this information available. 93 uh, uh, public universities in uh, FBS. And let me just walk you through what this is. So you can see the red pointer right there. Institutions are ordered by external revenue, right? 
And so those who receive the smallest amounts of money from external sources, that is not from student fees or institutional subsidies, but instead from TV revenues, seat licenses, those sort of things, uh, they do it. Now I'm from the great state of Ohio and the great city of Akron, right? And so when I see this, I see Ohio State University right here, and I see schools like the University of Akron closer to here, right? And two things that you want to take away from this particular graph, right? The first is, we show it for two years. This is 2010, the non, and then you see 2005, the dashed. In either one of those years individually, you notice that there is a wide gap between those elite athletic programs and these other programs. Over 100 million or approaching 100 million here, and quite small over here. This is really a tri tremendous gap, yet these schools are on the same athletic field and subject to a lot of the same policies. Right? The second thing to notice is this is 2005, this dash line. This is 2010. If you noticed, more money came into the system between 2005 and 2010. But that money primarily went to making schools with large amounts of athletic revenue have extremely large amounts of athletic revenue from these external sources. And so that's an empirical uh, analysis of this idea of diverging revenues. Now let's think about some complexity and well, why, why is it that the data look like they do? First of all, a changing marketplace, more money in the system. Right? Uh, right, one of the most, you know, the, the most startling amounts is right, television revenue, right? In the mid-1980s, uh, it's hard to get it, pin this down precisely, but, you know, we think television revenue was around 55 to 75 million. Today, it's a little bit over 1 billion, right? That's an increase of over 1,000%, well over 1,000%. That's a rather large increase, right? And at the same time, uh, programs have figured out a variety of ways to... Uh, uh, generate more money from their fan bases, right? Through whether it's uh, premium seat licenses, whether it's special access to the team through particular booster clubs and a variety of things. And so, and as the fan base grows wealthy, you know, the United States has grown more wealthy historically, if we go back long enough, and especially the wealthiest members of our society have, have seen their income increase. And athletic programs have tapped into much of that wealth uh, through, you know, a variety of uh, savvy business practices. And that's the first thing, more money in the system. What's the second part of the story? The money that came into the system disproportionately went to a small number of elite programs, right? And, and it's not that surprising because intercollegiate athletics has many of the features of a winner-take-all market, as described by uh, Frank and Cook. And there's a number of reasons why I say that. Let me just give you one, because I don't have time to go into all the theoretical complexity. Let me just go into one key issue about the... Oh, one key issue of this idea of a winner-take-all market, which is positive feedback loops. That's a central part of a winner-take-all market. Now, these positive feedback loops can expl explain why the elite athletic programs have remained mostly the same over the time, over time. So let's just walk through a positive feedback loop. And I'll use uh, Ohio State University, uh, since that's one that, you know, quite familiar with. Let's start with this idea of a history of winning, right? So a school like Ohio State University has a tremendous history of winning. There's a whole uh, set of stories about their success and a lot of connection to that success. And that has led to major fan interest. Go to the state of Ohio 
and you'll see a lot of people wearing uh, Ohio State uh, stuff, identifying with the Buckeyes, and being very passionately involved in the outcome of the football games, right? And Ohio State University, and University of Florida, University of Texas, Alabama, you can name a lot of others, have figured out a number of ways to tap into that passion in a way that leads to a large amount of externally generated revenue, whether it's TV revenue, whether it's seat licenses, or some of the other ones that I said. These athletic programs, when they have a lot of externally generated revenue, they can pay their coaches really high amounts, and they can build tremendous facilities and infrastructures, right? When you have top coaches and good facilities and infrastructures, it becomes a lot easier to attract top recruits. When you attack top recruits, you're much more likely to win, and winning, by the way, makes it even easier to recruit because athletes want to play on that. And as you win, your history of winning increases and more people have a lifelong connection to your institution, a passionate one, as, as uh, is well documented. And so this is one of the positive feedback loops why a small set of athletic programs are able to generate large amounts of money and, um, uh, and they remain in that place over time. So that's really walking through step one, diverging revenues, right? Let's go to step two, cascading expenditures. So let me walk you through uh, what's present here, and I'm not sure everything translated well when we went to the Mac, but not too bad. Uh, you can refer to the paper if you uh, want this better. So let's, uh, let's go to this. Now what we have here is revenues and expenditures. You've already seen this expenditure revenues thing. This is 2005. So you see again the wide gap between the elite athletic programs and the less elite athletic programs. Let's now turn to expenditures, right? And so again, we're ordering the institutions by revenue, right? The Ohio States of the world here, the Akrons of the world here. And you notice, and then you draw a locally weighted regression through those data points, and you see this line here. Let's take this line, let's take this line, and combine them right here. All right, what you see, you see two things when you look at that, right? Two things I want you to pick out. First of all, notice these elite programs right here. They are spending, all, the amount they're spending on athletics is very similar to the amount they take in from external sources on athletics. So there's all the money that they bring in from athletics, they end up spending on athletics. The second thing to take is this point right here. These institutions right here, the amount that they're taking in, the dash line revenue, is below the amount they're spending on expenditures. So they are spending more on athletics than they are taking in from external sources. And so therefore they're running deficits right here, which are, you know, are covered by institutional subsidies, student fees or that sort of thing. So two things, a lot of data up there with only two things you have to remember. Number one, the elite programs spend almost everything they take in. Number two, um, the other programs are spending more than they take in. And now let's think about this over time. I just showed you a point in time. Let's compare 2005, 2010. We can only go back to 2005 on this because of data restrictions. What do you see? You see changes over time. Again, we're ordering them the same way we've ordered them every time. Ohio State over here, Akron over here. And this is the change between 2005 and 2010. See, it's a little less orderly because changes over time are gonna be a little bumpier, but you see this line that goes through the heart of the data. Let's do the same thing for expenditures. You see again a line that goes through the data. Those are kind of messy, so let's just take those locally weighted regression lines and put them here. What do we see when we look over time as opposed to a time? The same two stories. Story number one, 
The elite athletic programs spend almost everything that they take in. Looks like they, some of them may reduce their subsidy a little bit. And other programs are seeing their expenditures increase more than their revenues increase. And so their deficits are going to grow, and you have to cover your deficit somewhat. So there's two things to explain here, sort of to, to talk about the conceptual framework that we're talking about. The first thing is, why do these athletic programs spend more than they spend? Perhaps they say, you know, we've we got 100 million. You spent all that. We went up to 130 million this year. Just keep spending 100 million. You don't necessarily need to spend 130 million, right? That logic sometimes holds for particular colleges within a university. It doesn't necessarily have to hold in athletics. We have to explain that. And the second part to explain is, why might, when these schools spend more, the Ohio States of the world, why might that lead these schools over here to spend more? Why might expenditures cascade from these schools to these schools? Those are the two things that we go over in great depth. Unfortunately, I can't go over it in great depth with you right now, but let me just give you a, a quick overview, because this is really where a lot of the complexity comes in. Right? This idea that elite athletic programs increase spending when their athletic revenues increase. We use a variety of ideas to advance this. I just talk about two. Uh, the first is the idea of resource dependency theory, right? Which can help us understand why uh, university leaders may have difficulty telling their athletic program, "I know that you received uh, 110, you spent 110 million last year, and you saw your revenues increase by quite a bit." But we're going to uh, try to scale back a bit in how much we spend on athletics. Uh, there will be a lot of pressure on university leaders not to do so. Uh, the revenue theory of cost, which is another uh, uh, helpful thing, because it gets to this point of, what, at what point do you have all the money that you need? And what revenue theory of cost is very nice for saying is, there's no moment that we have all the money that we need. That's true for the university. There's always more athletic units you can do. Each of them can be made better. You can, you can almost have it inf spend an infinite amount of money because you can always be doing more or doing it better. Same thing is true for athletics. We, we, we can spend the extra $30 million because we can make our facilities better. We can be competitive in more sports. We can provide better academic and other services for our athletes. And there's no moment at which you'll ever have enough money where anyone can rationally say, that's all the money that you need. Right? There's, o there, there's no clear rational analysis to do that. The second part is this idea that when Ohio State spends more, the University of Akron may spend more, right? Or fill in, if you're from a different state, fill in whatever relevant institutions would be there, a different region, right? And we, we talk about a couple of things. The first is the idea of positional arms races, right? The idea that there is this competition. Uh, even if institution has less resources, they want to be somewhat competitive with their other institutions. They may even want to, to, to uh, defeat them. And so that can encourage more spending. Now, it could be that the institution says, we don't wish to compete. We, we're fine not winning in this competition. We're fine perhaps not participating in this high level. But there are a variety of pressures that make it hard for an institution to do that. Second thing is uh, ideas from new institutional theory, which can touch upon um, ideas pertaining to um, New institutional theory, which can touch upon a, a range of ideas. The NCAA and the federal government will be heavily influenced by the presence of elite high-revenue athletic programs. Right? Those, uh, those high-revenue athletic programs might lead these organizations to develop rules and policies that are more expensive. Right? You can also think of it in terms of other ways, such that 
a lot of the elite athletic programs have to be at prominent public flagship universities or elite privates. Perhaps other college universities say, we want to be more like those elite schools. Perhaps the way to be like those elite schools is to do what they do. What do they do? They spend a lot of money on athletics. Maybe we should spend similar amounts. We can also think of ways about the professions of athletic directors and coaches, how they may have incentives to encourage their institution to spend more like elite institutions. And so again, I, I really can just uh, scratch the surface on what we're talking about, about these cascading expenditures. But what I want you to pick up is there's a large amount of ways that spending at elite schools can translate into spending at other institutions. So let's go to the third part, ensuing subsidies. Right? As I said, it's pretty clear. Revenues diverge, expenditures cascade, and you've got to fill that gap. How do you fill that gap? Primarily institutional subsidies and student fees. So let's look here again, uh, same principle as before, right? lining them up by their amount of external revenue. And you see this is the level of subsidies, inst primarily institutional subsidies and student fees. And you see that with both of these. Now, if you compare the two, we see the exact opposite when I looked at external revenues. For subsidies, there is also substantial inequality, but the inequality primarily lasts from these institutions over here, having more of their revenue come from uh, these subsidy categories than these institutions, right? And this inequality has increased over time. So that if you are a student at an institution that receives less external revenues, the amount of money that comes from institutional subsidies and student fees to cover athletics has grown over time. Well, that's not the case if you are a student at the University of Texas, Ohio State, or Michigan. But subsidies are not bad. Most of the things that college universities do are subsidized. The idea is we are doing important work that advances the mission of society, and therefore, we are subsidized in doing this work. Right? I, I always make a joke sometimes, I'm in the business of losing money while meeting mission. Right? Um, and that's, society says this is really important stuff, we're going to subsidize you because this is really important, and therefore go off and do this really important things to advance society. And one could argue that athletics is uh, you know, an important part of uh, what colleges and universities do, both for the student athletes and for the institution and for the larger community. Right? And so the question is, how large should these subsidies be? Well, in uh, 2010, of our 93 schools, uh, 27 of them had subsidies that were higher than $750 per FTE student. And nine of them had per student subsidies above $1,000. That was up from 17 and four in 2005. What is the right amount of subsidy? That's a difficult thing to say, but those are really substantial amounts of money when you compare it to tuition and fees and the financial challenges that students face. Now, this would not necessarily be a problem if it was just rosy times in higher education, if we just had cash to burn because we're sitting on a tremendous amount of money. Right now, you know, um, there are great challenges within intercollegiate athletics. Uh, we ha great challenges within higher education, right? Uh, state and federal funding uh, is challenging. And we also uh, see projections for the future that suggest it be might become even more challenging in the future. And also there's real concerns about are we reaching the price ceiling for tuition? Has student debt gone up too much? And, you know, and so there's a real heightened opportunity cost associated with these subsidies. So large and growing subsidies and these subsidies may have you know, uh, a bigger impact in the sense that college universities are having trouble protecting their academic core and covering their tuition.
So this is all, you know, challenging stuff. So I talk, my, my research in general talks about financial uh, challenges within higher education, so I'm essentially not always the most inspiring, fun-loving speaker ever to uh, hit the speaker circuit. But let me go through some um, policy options real quick, go through them real four. Number one, alter revenue distribution, right? If you, uh, if you think about uh, revenues, right, that we have these inequality, maybe if we did things so that revenues were distributed a bit more evenly, then what you might have is these institutions may not increase revenues as much, so they may not spend as much, so expenditures may not cascade as much, and these institutions down here may not have their expenditures go up as much, and their revenues may go up because of different revenue distribution policies, and therefore their subsidies are smaller, meaning that students at those institutions don't have to cover as much subsidies. And if you think about your, your report, right, you had a policy to think about how we distribute uh, tournament revenue and BCS revenue, basketball tournament and BCS. And it was primarily motivated by improving incentives for academic success and cost control, but this is another benefit of the policy that you were promoting in that. Uh, limit expenditures at the top. Um, perhaps there's rules about how many non-coaching personnel, to take something from the news recently, or the number of foreign tours that athletes can go on that can limit the extent to which institutions at the top can spend lots of money that cascade down. Limit the cascading of expenditures. The most prominent example of that is things about, well, do we, do we uh, create barriers somewhat between perhaps the BCS conferences and other conferences? That's something that's often put forth. Well, that's one way to limit the cascading of expenditures in terms of policies. Finally, we could just take no action at all. And what could happen is revenues could continue to diverge, cascader, ca expenditures could continue to cascade, and the gap between revenues and expenditures could continue to grow, and student fees and institutional subsidies at these institutions could continue to grow, and it could threaten the, uh, the ability of these institutions to protect their academic core and make college affordable. Now, it does not, um, um, Athletics is not the only thing creating financial challenges in, in higher education. This would all be present. It's just, it's just part of that larger context. And so we hope in our work that we've made it easier for you to talk about policy options, think about policy options, and communicate that to other individuals. Thank you. John, thank you very much. Uh, now we'll turn to uh, our final presentation in this session uh, entitled De-Escalation of Commitment Among Division I Athletic Departments. And uh, we have Adrian Boucher, who is the Warren Clinic Endowed Professor of Sports Administration at the University of Tulsa, and Michael Hutchinson, who's an Assistant Professor of Sport Commerce at the University of Memphis. So, uh, Adrian, are you going to start? All right, thank you. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Uh, about five years ago, uh, Michael and I were searching for uh, some research to do. We came across a uh, uh, organizational be uh, behavior theory called Escalation of Commitment, which was originally started by a professor at Cal Berkeley named Barry Staw, who was looking for reasons why the U.S. not got involved in the Vietnam War, but stayed involved in, in the Vietnam War. And he came up with this theory that said that great social pressures were put on the United States to stay involved in a, um, in a situation that was uh, not very advantageous. And so we started thinking that there were some similarities between 
some of those constructs and what was going on with uh, Division I athletics. So we wrote some articles on escalation of commitment. So, um, so as youngsters, we, we're always taught the value of persistence, correct? In our report that we wrote, we used uh, the analogy of Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. Uh, for years and years and years, we've watched this cartoon where Wile E. Coyote keeps chasing after the Roadrunner, uh, despite the fact that that uh, behavior is not rewarded behavior, correct? And, and again, we started thinking that maybe this has, uh, maybe there were some uh, similarities between what some universities were doing in terms of escalating their spending despite the fact that, that uh, there might be negative feedback and, and this cartoon that we all watched as kids. Um, escalation of commitment leads to what we call permanently failing organizations. Dr. Cheslock talked about when there's the differences between revenues and expenditures, some third party has to make up those. Uh, those differences and we call those uh, in organizational behavior we call those permanently failing uh, organizations so when we were doing our research what we were really impressed about were the university administrators that stood up and said that we are going to de-escalate uh, spending on uh, in university athletics uh, and we all I'm not going to go over the examples uh, you, you can read what uh, you can read what we wrote but we, uh, we thought that was kind of interesting how these university administrators sort of said, uh, we're not going to really pay attention to the social costs. We're going to look at uh, uh, doing the right thing by the university. Um, and when we say de-escalation, we're not talking about quitting, okay? We're not talking about quitting. We're talking about, in many cases, what we came to call redirection. Um, we talked about uh, why, why uh, athletics escalates and why University, or why universities de-escalate spending on, on athletics. And we came up with a manifestation of de-escalation process in Division I uh, athletics. And, that, and as the last bullet point will show, that there were key, what we focused on were the key triggering activities that were the cause of the de-escalation, which we'll, which we'll get to in a moment. All right, so we came up with uh, really three, um, three categories, reclassification, removal, and uh, restru restructure. The uh, removal was separated in, uh, obviously, football bowl subdivisions and football championship subdivisions. And this was our sample size. We took eight schools. Reclassification was uh, Centenary College of Louisiana, Birmingham Southern College, which is a small liberal arts school in Birmingham, Alabama. And removal was Northeastern uh, University in Boston, along with LaSalle. Um, and then the removal was at the, at the bowl subdivision level was at the University of Pacific, Long Beach State. And then the restructure was uh, Vanderbilt University. This was what we call in academia a collective case study, which spanned almost a decade of uh, research from two uh, 2003 to 2012. Uh, we used qualitative methods. Uh, which were mostly conducted by the interviews, which we'll talk about in just a second, along with a pretty thorough document analysis. Uh, these are some of the demographic information of the interview participants that we did. There were 33 total uh, interviewees. 
we tried to we tried to touch on all the major decision makers at the university. We wanted to talk with the people that that made the decision to redirect uh, redirect their athletic programs. These titles range from uh, presidents to chancellors, uh, board of trustees members, uh, athletic directors, and then some athletic uh, department personnel as well as some faculty athletic reps. Um, again, we wanted to be true to the uh, uh, the methods in our uh, in our study. So this slide just shows you some of the what we call trustworthiness when it comes to doing academic research. Some of the things we looked at. Um, we audio taped all the oh we audio taped and then we transcribed all the interviews that we did. We sent the audio tape back to the people that did the interviews to make sure that we were correctly uh, documenting not only what they said but what they thought as well. Okay, so let's get to some of the findings. First and foremost, what is most important with de-escalation is that it's considered to be an emergent process. If you looked at former laboratory-based investigations that have taken place in the for-profit sector, you'd notice that they said that de-escalation was more of a one-time immediate occurrence. And that's not something that we found from our study to take place. De-escalation took place over a period of time. It was a progression. And therefore, as we found, it went through pretty, four pretty distinct phases. Now, within each of these phases, there were some key triggering activities that uh, helped progress the de-escalation measures. And so I want to go through and talk about each one of those phases. The first phase consisted of a simplistic recognizing a problem, that there was an issue with the current status quo and that something simply needed to be changed. Now, another de-escalation research that has taken place within the for-profit sector, the first triggering activity has been that of the presence of negative feedback. Now, what's most interesting here in higher education, specifically intercollegiate athletics, is negative feedback really didn't emerge. In fact, with the exception of some select stakeholder groups, or excuse me, some select faculty member groups, really everyone was in favor of the decision to maintain the existing commitment to Division I athletics community members, media members, students, donors, all of those groups on the whole were pretty satisfied with the existing course of action. Now a second triggering activity that emerged and that we certainly did see manifest itself within this study was external pressure. And that can particularly be emphasized in the cases of Long Beach State, University of the Pacific, and East Tennessee State. Now, Long Beach State and University of the Pacific actually redirected in the mid-90s. They were the only institutions that didn't fulfill our criteria of 10 years because there hadn't been any other FBS, or in, this, in that case, Division I-A, that had redirected uh, their Division I commitment. In that case, it really came down to the current economic state of the state of California and that they were in some pretty dire financial circumstances. Very similar with East Tennessee State in that over a period of time, they had actually been having or experiencing diminishing in, uh, state appropriations from the state. Eventually, by the time they got to 2003, those appropriations had been eliminated altogether. So certainly external pressure played into the initial consideration of some form of redirection initiative. After there was the recognition of the problem, we then saw a transition into this re-examination of a prior course of action. Now, what was interesting here is we had two key triggering activities that emerged. Uh, first and foremost, we had the clarification of the magnitude of the problem. 
This was probably most evident in the Birmingham Southern and Centenary cases, and that both of those institutions were reclassified from Division I to Division III, and they were under dire financial circumstances. In these cases, really administrators just said, we need objective black and white evidence of the dire financial circumstances that we're in right now as we continue to participate and commit to Division I. And so that was something that became very important. The second triggering activity was something that I think to be a little bit more interesting, and that was the reframing or redefining of the problem at hand. Now, most institutions, I would say pretty subjectively, whenever they consider some form of redirection, whether it be removing a sport, whether it be reclassification or some other type of, of, of redirection, look at a problem and say, how can we make the existing commitment work as is? And what was interesting about each one of these eight cases is they came from it at a different perspective. They looked at it from a different paradigm and simply stated, rather, how can we make the existing commitment work? What commitment is in the best interest of our university? And also in the importance of athletics as a whole of the department. Northeastern University that removed their football program in 2009, uh, administrators said, you know, we didn't go into the discussion with the idea that we're going to remove football. We didn't want to do that. But it came down to the point where we narrowed down our options of bettering our student-athlete experience by removing football. Vanderbilt, which was only, the only institution that really wasn't under dire financial straits, Northeastern not so much either, but Vanderbilt said, you know, we're just looking for a different way to compete in Division I. We never considered reclassifying, we never considered leaving the SEC, but we needed to fulfill two items with redirection. Number one, we wanted a better student-athlete experience to get them more incorporated in the university, but we also needed more accountability with athletics. And they had a little bit more non-traditional model that hasn't been implemented at Division I that very, very often. Now, after there was the re-examination of the prior course of action, we then begin to see the generation of alternative courses of action. So what directions can we go that are going to be legitimate in nature? And that is probably the, the, key trigger, the, the key of all key triggering activities within this phase was not only identifying alternatives, but identifying legitimate alternatives. Each of these institutions went through several different options uh, in each of these instances, there was the consideration of Division I non-scholarship football, the consideration of reclassification. Uh, there was the consideration in a couple of circumstances of putting a football program on hiatus. At the end of the day, uh, for many of these institutions, there were only a select few, usually one legitimate alternative. In the case of East Tennessee State, they actually considered, uh, rather than removing football, putting the football program on hiatus. They considered Division I non-scholarship. But at the end of the day, they concluded that that was going to be quite difficult. Something that if in the end they wanted to remove football, it was going to make it more difficult to do so if they had, say, put the program on hiatus. Uh, University of the Pacific actually put their program on an extended period of, of hiatus as well that ultimately didn't really benefit them according to those that were, that were interviewed. <clears throat> The second key triggering activity, and that likely best leads into the fourth phase of implementing the exit strategy, deals with administrator impression management. And what that essentially means is the reputation of administrators came into play. And I would say that this is probably one of the things that inhibits other institutions from redirecting uh, their current commitment to Division I. 
What was interesting about these findings is that contrary to other settings and other environments, administrators took ownership of the decision. There wasn't usually any blame that was placed on some other uh, group of individuals or stakeholders, some other reason. Certainly there was the justification of external pressures and uh, the pressure that they were under to make a decision and make a modification. But what was most interesting is that they simply stated it was in the nature of my job as an athletic or an athletic or educated education administrator to make this decision, at least for those athletic directors that were in favor of this decision. And so East Tennessee State provides a great example that uh, brief implication here is that although that is going to bode well for the university as a whole, for the individual administrator it's probably going to prove not so great for a career. Uh, in fact, updating your resume not, might not be a bad idea. In that one of the interviewees stated how not only the president, but key administrators involved in the decision were simply, their careers were marred. Uh, many of them at East Tennessee, at Centenary, and, and others actually ended up moving on to other institutions. And so although it's good for the university as a whole, as I'll speak to in a moment, for the individual, uh, not so great. Now, this transitions into our final phase of de-escalation, that of implementing the exit strategy. And I, th I think if you were to look at many institutions that have considered redirection at the Division I level, you'd notice that many of them probably fulfill each one of these first three phases pretty well. However, this final stage of implementing the exit strategy is where we exerted some significant difficulties and really that separated uh, those that were very serious about redirection. A recent example of an institution that has probably not, that has definitely not gone through the entire process would be that of University of New Orleans. A couple years ago, University of New Orleans opted to reclassify from Division I to Division III. They then changed that recently to Division II. And then in March of this last year, or this year actually, they opted to stay in Division I. Other recent examples would be Tulane University, Rice University. They've all considered redirection, but when it came to implementation, it proved to be a little bit too far-fetched. So the first triggering activity within the implementation phase simply dealt with the involvement of stakeholders. Now in former environments, you'd see both internal and external stakeholders consulted on uh, an extensive basis. However, what was interesting from our findings here, with the exception of Northeastern and um, LaSalle University, is that stakeholder involvement proved to be uh, not beneficial really in any capacity. Several institutions exhibited this, Centenary, Birmingham Southern, Vanderbilt, East Tennessee. Uh, in fact, many of these institutions, it's not to say that they hadn't attempted to involve stakeholders in the past. So East Tennessee State, for instance, they had gone through a couple of different task forces and faculty as well as other external stakeholder committees, two of which in the 90s. However, that proved not to be beneficial and really inhibited de-escalation progression. Uh, Vanderbilt, for instance, actually went through some serious considerations in the late 80s and a couple of instances in the 90s uh, with reclassification and other avenues for de-escalation. Ultimately, though, the involvement of stakeholders proved to be uh, not as beneficial in, in continuing forth with that de-escalation. So the implementation of a task force, other than Northeastern and LaSalle, is likely not to prove to be beneficial with implementation. The final triggering activity deals with deinstitutionalization of the project, and that simply deals with actually following through with the decision that has been made. 
And so East Tennessee, I mentioned to you earlier how they had considered putting a football program on hiatus. At the end of the day, they said, you know, that's simply going to be too difficult. It's not, a it's not considered a legitimate alternative. And therefore, rather than following through with that, we opted to simply pull up the AstroTurf, sell off the equipment, and when we were done, we were done. Now, an interesting finding that was provided by Birmingham Southern and Long Beach State dealt with what I've kind of simply defined as a distraction. What they did with Birmingham Southern, for instance, is up and until 2006, they didn't have a football program. So they transitioned from NAIA to Division I in 99-2000. They went from D1 to D3 in 2006. And in 2006, while they were transitioning to D3, they added a football program. Now, that certainly didn't make stakeholders extremely happy, particularly those that were committed to D1, but it served as somewhat of a distraction. Uh, same thing with Long Beach State in that uh, whenever they removed their football program, they also built a basketball arena that was kind of used as a means to placate stakeholder anguish. And uh, really, as I like to think of it, it's very similar to feeding a two-year-old vegetables in that if we can mix in some mashed potatoes and macaroni, it doesn't eliminate the fact that vegetables are still there, but it certainly distracts them and makes them less annoyed at eating the vegetables. So what about some of the practical implications? What can we take away with this, uh, from this? Well, first and foremost, just because there is an absence of negative feedback in the nonprofit higher education sector does not mean that we simply need to ignore any type of consideration for redirection. And that's where that reframing the problem comes into play. In many instances, and I'm not speaking of the University of Texas or LSU, in many instances for those Division I institutions that are considering redirection, there needs to be the reframing of the problem. Not so much how can we make the existing commitment work, trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, but more along the lines of what commitment and course of action is in the best interest of the university, and very importantly, the athletic department as a whole. The second implication deals with stakeholder involvement. And at the end of the day, with the exception of Northeastern and LaSalle that experienced great success with incorporating a task force, the task force wasn't very uh, beneficial. And so the consideration of involving stakeholders may need to be put on hold as early conversations take place about any form of redirection. The third implication deals simply with the reputation of administrators and their individual impression management. And so personally, this is probably going to take a hit. I mentioned to you with East Tennessee and Centenary, there were others that uh, eventually had to move on to other institutions or other occupations. However, there is great benefit for the institution and in my final takeaway, I'll speak to that very briefly. Finally, if there is an opportunity to have some form of stakeholder distraction, some form of, not bribe, but some type of give and take maybe that can distract uh, stakeholders that are highly committed to the Division I course of action, that's certainly something to be considered. And although there are only two brief examples provided here, there are certainly other avenues for doing so. So the final takeaway. Whenever the de-escalation process was all said and done, uh, whether it was a year ago, say with Centenary, or whether it was in the 90s, such as Long Beach and Pacific, what's most interesting is that contrary to media reports and what many stakeholders would happen, the sun still came up the next day. The university still existed. What was most interesting is whenever I talked to VPs for enrollment and others that were involved in admissions, and I asked them, it's very difficult, I know, to objectify what happened with enrollment, if there's any type of impact or effect, but what, have the, what, is, what has it done? What does it look like? Enrollment still 
maintained its steady increase. In some instances, it continued to increase, probably not a result of athletics, but that's certainly a fact. What else, what else is also interesting is that the demographics of the students actually maintained the same even after redirection from Division I occurred, so there wasn't this significant drop-off like many would speculate. Another interesting finding, and, and I don't have uh, consensus objective proof of this, but after looking at a few institutions and talking to administrators, what's interesting is that winning and performance actually got better in many circumstances. East Tennessee State exhibited that. Uh, Vanderbilt also exhibited, certainly at least a period of time, of increased in performance on the field. And what's interesting there is that you think about it, there were more resources, more financial resources in many of these cases to put towards coaches, to put towards recruiting, to put towards facilities. And so the final takeaway here is that it, it doesn't end, it's not the end-all be-all to redirect in some capacity. And for those institutions considering some form of de-escalation initiatives, I think there are some considerations that need to take place. And for those that are interested in the process, that gives them, this gives them just a very brief and, and broad-based understanding of, of what that might look like. Thank you. Okay, Adrian and Michael, thank you very much. And let me thank all the presenters for uh, not only the quality of research you've done, but uh, the very effective presentations uh, this, this morning. Uh, we have about uh, 30 minutes to uh, engage the presenters, and uh, so I throw the floor open to my colleagues, uh, to anyone who has a question they would like to raise. I'll take start with. Okay. Uh, John, in your research, you, uh, the implications of it, it assumes that, uh, that there would be a distribution from the ones you call the elites uh, to those that, uh, I've forgotten your term, regular ones or, or non-elites or whatever, you know, whatever term you use. Uh, but that assumes that there's a commitment throughout everybody on your line uh, to sort of the equal playing field approach that uh, Jack DeJoy was mentioned in uh, earlier sessions for us. And so what... Uh, you, I know you were just looking at the data from that regard, but assuming there's not, your last assumption is incorrect, that there's not a, a commitment uh, throughout 1A or BCS uh, to uh, some type of parity uh, in some way. What, what would you see the implications of that being for your, for your two groups? Well, that's uh, really a perfect question to ask after seeing that. Uh, let me just touch upon several things related to that question. First of all, it is always difficult. What do you call the non-elites? Uh, what do you call the people who, institutions that aren't elites? And uh, so that, that's, just touch upon that. And another thing to just say, it's much easier to diagnose the problem than it is to uh, identify a solution that will be accepted by all the individuals that must accept it. So that is the point, is that my hunch is uh, when the Knight Commission went with their report to the University of Tech, went to it to Big Ten and SEC and Big 12 institutions, they didn't say, you know what, Knight Commission, thank you for asking us to redistribute NCAA tournament money. This is, uh, we're really happy that you're pushing this and we think this is a great idea because on narrow institutional self-interest, right, they may object to that. But here's perhaps the one way that may be able to touch to that, right? So there, there's, if everyone's thinking a narrow institutional self-interest, they may not wish to 
redistribute some of these things. But you can then touch upon something that I didn't talk about in my talk, which is that um, a sustainable athletic program, uh, a sustainable intercollegiate athletic system has tremendous benefits from the, to the elite programs, right? To be an elite program, to be a program that's ranked very highly, you must compete with other institutions. Your rank is only sort of there if there are other people who you're competing against, right? And uh, the University of Texas benefits from a large number of institutions competing with them because they are, by comparison, of very high rank. And so they benefit from the system that's there. They also benefit from the system in that if we have this elite group that eventually breaks off because everyone de-escalates in the fine way that they talk about, it's going to be much harder to argue that this is an amateur system. It's going to be much more difficult if the high revenue uh, institutions break off from those. And so there are all these benefits to those elite institutions in the system. Uh, and so if they go beyond just narrow short-term interest and think what's in their long-term interest, they may realize that actually more distribution of revenue is in our interest when we think broad and long-term. So that's my, the thoughts that come to mind in response to your question. Yes, uh, Val. Uh, thanks, uh, Britt. And I want to just thank all the uh, contributors here for the for the great work. Very in, very informative. Um, I guess I have two questions. One is directed to uh, President Castine um, as it relates to his research. Um, I guess my question, John, is: Did you, did you look at all into um, board turnover or terms and the effect that might have on? their roles and the effectiveness of their decisions with respect to athletics, the composition of those boards, because we've had some talk about that here, um, independent versus boosters versus others. And then thirdly, uh, the role of subcommittees of boards so that you have sort of a direct focus on athletics versus the, uh, the entire board being asked to be engaged on some less regular basis. And then my second question is, John, for you, um, it had to do with the the expense categories, you didn't delve in, I'm sure you looked at this, but the, the nature of those expenses and which, which ones have seen in your research the highest growth rates and which are the most likely to cascade down to the schools which are generating less revenue? Where are they working the hardest to catch up or um, to sort of compete whatever arms race way on the expense side? So those are my, those are my two questions. Well, the, the questions you raised with regard to the work we've done were not explicitly in the survey instrument. Uh, Merrill Schwartz is really the expert on the commentary that came with the responses, but my impression of it is that it was frequently mentioned that new board members and board committees sometimes pose challenges because of the, on the first hand, the lack of sufficient orientation and training as to what it is to be accountable for, for policy formation and, and enactment. And on the other hand, the prospect that going into a subcommittee structure for athletics may have the effect of taking a major institutional commitment and a major point of public risk and possibly opportunity out of the center of the board's vision and putting it off into a, a side category. Uh, the thing that, that repeatedly struck me, and I mentioned this in my summary remarks, is that there is not a credible body of knowledge to inform training for boards at the extreme ends of the policy spectrum. For example, 
the kinds of large opportunities that might be implicit in conference realignment if the realignment has the effect of strengthening individual universities. Boards seem not to talk about that. And on the other end, the kind of radical exposure that a couple of our, our finest institutions have, have had in the last several months because of violations, the process of investigation, the external enactment of penalties, and so on, an exposure that, frankly, no training quite gets at. Uh, if I may repeat the comparison to what goes on in connection with top-tier public corporations, it's very, very different. Although, oddly enough, in some cases, the dollar multiples aren't. Uh, you know, large university budgets are measured in billions of dollars and not in, in even hundreds of millions. So in the large picture, the exposure or the lost opportunity to go to the opposite ends of the spectrum, have to be mo those have to be motives to drive boards toward demanding the kind of informed training that I believe they would benefit to have and repeating it. There's the notion that once you're qualified, you're qualified. There are cases that are in the range of national scandal of board members who serve for very long periods of time without complying to community standard with community standards of, of best conduct. We can all remember a couple of them. That that's a clue that something about maybe not term limits, but something about regular rotation may be beneficial to, to the universities. Can me to add something about board committees? Uh, when the 2009 statement was uh, developed and approved by AGV's board, the, uh, state, the question of whether boards benefit by having a separate athletics committee was considered, and we looked at whether we should make a strong recommendation about a separate athletics committee, and there were uh, points on both sides for in favor of a separate athletics committee and uh, integrating the oversight of athletics into other committees of the board, spreading that responsibility throughout the board. And it wasn't there. In practice, there's about a 50-50 division on who does which. And there seems to be good practice on both sides. So there wasn't a, uh, a clear recommendation. And doing it well, having clear dele delegation of uh, responsibility, clear charges to committees was important. Uh, just as it is to an athletics committee, but it wasn't clear that one was better than the other, and it seems to work well in different places for, for different reasons. Uh, in structuring the questionnaire, we took that into account, and most of the questions on practice uh, asked, does the board or a board committee, and we allowed in the answer for looking at uh, whether they receive sufficient information, whether they're uh, properly prepared and had questions about the board or board committee. So we, we didn't separate out and analyze the, uh, we didn't report it uh, separately, but recognized that if the board or the board committee was doing it, that it fulfilled what our expectation was. John? Um, in the paper we, that, that we shared with you on in figures two and three, we break uh, the analysis down by separate revenue categories. You asked about expenditures, but what you see with the separate revenue categories is you see the exact same relationship with ticket revenue, contributions, conference distributions, royalty licensing, advertising, sponsorships. And, you know, you sort of get the same patterns across categories. Um, 
the expenditures analysis breakdown was not part of this paper. It's, it's sort of ongoing. And, you know, in general, we are, we're expecting and finding that you see these same sort of patterns with expenditures because they're very broad categories. Uh, we, in ongoing future work, we're going to really uh, extend a lot the expenditure analysis, and I'll, be make I'll make sure to share that with the commission. We're also just, uh, you know, extending this to FCS institutions. We're trying to move these institutions in a, in a variety of ways. And so that's a, a good question. But it's really tricky, especially this idea of cascading expenditures just in terms of the academic work to be able to definitively say, because this school spent this, this other school sp spent this. Uh, it's really hard to model that, especially given the fact that different schools use different accounting categories and the sort of aggregate analysis is often uh, the best way to provide insight in this way. John, uh, just to your response, I mean, since the amount of money that can go to the student athlete is capped, basically, I mean, isn't it pretty clear that the increase in expenditures uh, has been in uh, personnel costs, salaries, staff, and facilities? I mean, what other categories could there be? Yes, yeah, no, and, and that, that's, a, that's a very nice distinction because I, uh, in my answer, I sort of, uh, those things that are set by NCA policy in a very strict way, of course, that increase, and so we're only looking at those categories that actually can increase. So. Uh, so yes, you, you, I'm glad you followed up with that because I was assuming that, of course, those aren't going to increase and that can be a little confusing. Chuck, did you have your hand up earlier? Uh, yes, but it's a, it's a kind of a factual question. Maybe I'd be best to ask you privately. But uh, to Adrian and Michael. Okay, um, other questions? I had one for... Um, John and Rick, uh, you, you know, I think uh, your, the, your report and the recommendations uh, make such good sense in terms of organizational structure and board responsibility as fiduciaries. Uh, it's, it, it, it all seems very, very clear. And as I think you know, we have in fact just adopted a policy that is very similar to uh, the recommendations in, 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 your, in your report. I'd just be interested in your speculation uh, about on the following, that, uh, you know, we, a lot of bad decisions have been made uh, in, in, with intercollegiate athletics that have led to, I think, a, the, a situation that we all uh, sort of regret at the moment, uh, the state of intercollegiate athletics, at least at the big-time level. Um, in, in acknowledging that organizationally your recommendations are the right ones, do you have any reason to believe that if they were adopted, better decisions would be made? Uh, because, you know, my observation just looking across the country is that some of the greater, greatest pressures <laughs> for expenditures and competitiveness and winning actually come from board members. So I, I just wonder if you, I don't know, you didn't study that question, but I just wonder if you have any thoughts about on it. It, it is a question, Brett, that uh, came before our advisory group and our, and our project planning uh, uh, process, and it's one that uh, uh, AGB addresses across uh, other fronts beyond intercollegiate athletics. We recently uh, offered some uh, counsel to... Uh, uh, to boards and uh, academic administrators and institutions to in allow boards and invite boards to have a more appropriate 
uh, oversight role when it comes to academic quality and learning outcomes, uh, another challenging area. So the question for us really is, uh, can it work? Can better decisions be made? I think we have to ask it the other way, and that is, what are the consequences if we don't figure out a way to have boards work collaboratively? Again, this isn't about boards managing decisions. This is a board. These are boards working collaboratively with administrators to, as you all did it uh, uh, at the system level with your board, to develop a policy that structures the appropriate relationship between the chancellor of the system and your campus presidents and the appropriate level of board oversight so that they know the level of their authority, but they also know the limits of their authority and how that conversation uh, should, should take place. I think that in today's uh, heightened spotlight on higher education, on a very high spotlight, or bright spotlight, excuse me, on how well we do board governance, um, we need to focus on making sure that individuals who are being considered either for appointment to public boards, which is usually a public process, or for boards of independent institutions, aren't only oriented and go through an education process once they arrive in the boardroom, but are clearly informed about what the job is before they either accept an invitation to join a board or accept the governor's uh, invitation to serve so that they understand uh, the rules of the road and the, the, uh, the ultimate authority and the important work that they're being asked to do. So it's, it's a difficult challenge uh, to get to the point where you are going. But I don't think we have uh, an option but to continue to work with boards to make them more aware, but also to encourage chief executive officers to I use the word allow boards into the conversation in a more meaningful way than at least anecdotally we sense when we talk with presidents about the appropriate role of boards in this area and when too many chief executive officers say I really don't want my board uh, as as involved as perhaps AGB seems to be encouraging that. Brett, it, it seems to me that the analogy to corporate responsibility is useful. If you think about the reasons for Sarbanes-Oxley, or the reasons for Dodd-Frank, or the FASB reforms, in every instance that I know, accountability is assigned to the board level in corporations, not because the board was above the fray at the time when the, the causes of, of Sarbanes-Oxley were in the economy, but instead because there is a principle of accountability that has to do with the fiduciary who's ultimately responsible to the, the ultimate owners, shareholders, the public, uh, whatever that might be, of an asset, corporation, a university. It seems to me that board members work in the climate of, of knowing that background with regard to the, the larger corporate sector, even though historically we have not talked much about it. And on the other side, they read the newspapers. And they can follow, for example, the significance of a $60 million fine in the context of one of the nation's largest and best financed universities. They know that $60 million is the kind of number that, that trustees have to pay attention to. So it, it seems to me that the trend of our times and the enforcement and, and assignment uh, elements that we have in other sectors have obvious uh, impact on higher education and that the NCAA has, has spelled that out very clearly in its uh, most recent large enforcement action. Uh, 
I'm struck by the fact that the trustees who, who worked with us, talked with us, sat on our advisory group, did not at all question the ultimate responsibility that their bodies have. That Rick's basic analysis of, of where responsibility has to lie is what people who serve on the major boards also see. That uh, in the other reports you've heard, there's a process of, of conferral that engages the board in large strategic decisions. This is an ultimate decision that has to do with where the buck stops and with the fact that the chain of responsibility goes right through the CEO to the board or the corporate entity when on the right end of the spectrum things break so badly that policies can't uh, cover them. But also on the other end, when opportunities are so great that they, they spell a kind of, of uh, destiny political decision to be made on behalf of the university. Um, Bob Wood's analysis of 30 years ago fits the situation exactly. You know, I, just uh, the, the analogy with the corporate boards is useful. Uh, however, I, I think there, there is a difference in that the board responsibility of, of a, in the corporate sector is the stock price. I mean, the, the, the you know, basically the, the, the success of the, uh, unfortunately in higher education, it's not the success of the graduates that is the sole focus or the success of the research enterprise it's the sole focus winning athletic contests come into this mix in a disproportionate kind of way that undoubtedly will influence uh, i think uh, uh, board board decisions in, in in these matters so uh, it is i think it's a much more complex dynamic at at the with university board you had a question. <clears throat> yes, uh, my question is for uh, Adrian and, and Michael. Um, your study primarily focused on, if we used some of John's terminology, the non-elite uh, schools. And typically the de-escalation was triggered by financial issues. D do you have any thoughts or insights on how de-escalation might be triggered on the elite institutions? Well, first and foremost, I think Vanderbilt probably provided a, uh, an example. I don't know how uh, feasible for, for all elite institutions, but provide an example of a situation where finances weren't the key triggering activity. Uh, but certainly, uh, at the end of the day, I, I think it's very difficult to consider some other type of redirection initiative, you know, removing football in this instance, which our removal category is probably not a legitimate alternative, particularly for those uh, elite institutions that have that generate revenue or a profit from it. Uh, and certainly reclassification wouldn't be a legitimate alternative either. And so uh, the restructuring uh, is something that could possibly be considered Beyond that, uh, at this point in time, I, I can't think of anything that could be considered for elites. Do you have anything? So, uh, in my opinion, destructuring isn't much of de-escalation. It didn't change, I don't think it changed the budgets and how much they spent doing what they are doing. It was just like basically a reporting relationship that, that was shifted. Um, so, I'm thinking about what does it take to reduce the size of the emphasis on, on intercollegiate athletics in general within the university without having the financial pressures doing it. Okay. In fact, the financial situation is driving it in the exact opposite direction. So any thoughts? 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have any thoughts on uh, anything to add about the elites, except that I will say in the in the in the uh, in the context of Vanderbilt, it did send a message. I mean, you're right; it didn't change the budgets, and and maybe it was it was window dressing, but it did it did send a little bit of a message to at least the constituents at that university about the about where athletics is in terms of the reporting structure. But I, d I don't have an answer for you with with, with the elites. I, I wish I did. So do I, I wanted to say a word about Henry, you de-escalation. Yeah. Um, because I think there are more complex measures that one ought to think about. Uh, one would be to simply get rid of a sport, obviously, or to change the financing, change the reporting, though I think changing the reporting, frankly, my knowledge, you know more about Vanderbilt than I do. I didn't see it as all that much. But another is academic standards. And I would think there were a bunch of cases that came out in the 1980s or even earlier where a number of places, particularly Catholic colleges said uh, in basketball, we're not going to any longer take in large numbers of athletes who simply can't make the grade. And they did. Their basketball program suffered. I'm thinking about places like Manhattan, uh, Siena, uh, and yet, and they didn't always stick to their guns purely. Some of them did, some of them didn't. So another fundamental issue of changing the relationships between athletics and the university is to say we're going to maintain a certain kind of academic standards that heretofore we have not maintained. And to me, uh, and I don't, I read the, the paper, I don't recall that you dealt with that uh, in the Precy. Maybe you, you're, you're looking that as well. But I think it's an important thing to look at because if you go back to the work of the Knight Commission, what the commission has historically been concerned with is financing, um, costs, but also standards, academic standard, academic progress. So I think we can find examples of places, less so in football, I think, but more so in basketball, of places that really did change what they were about. You know, Henry, there, there's an interesting uh, conversation going on on that very topic at the University of North Carolina right now. And the, pre the outgoing chancellor has made some very strong statements about uh, what the <coughs> a athletic model is going to be going, going forward. Uh, Billy, did you have a question? And did you have uh, uh, a question, I guess, and that is uh, I was very intrigued by your presentations, uh, Dr. Bechet and Hutchinson, about uh, the escalation or escalation organizational commitment and uh, de-escalation and I was curious about if there's any thoughts you've given to the NCAA and its effort to try to create organizational change and its thrust and, and engagement with perhaps the BCS and all that and how that that principle if at all could uh, be useful in assessing uh, the NCAA and its its issues. I'm not sure I have an answer for for your question, except that you know, in the context of this study, we had to we had to maintain a fairly narrow focus, I guess. But in moving forward, maybe that's an area that we need to, as we sort of figure out where the next de-escalation line of research or line of inquiry goes, maybe that's something that we need to to look at in terms of the NCA governance. So I was I was struck by the Wiley Coyote. Did you like example. that? We debated long and hard on whether or not to include a little bit of humor, but uh, you know, can I, can I say something real quick? Getting back to your, 
your question earlier, a couple of the, the chief executives we talked to and talk about uh, de-escalating at the elites, a couple of them did mention the fact that, well, you know, the athletic departments are, you know, they continue to outsource their various revenue streams, whether that's uh, sponsorships, marketing, tickets. At most universities, they handle the, founda uh, the foundation handles the fundraising and even the coaching searches. And a couple of the chief executives that, that I talked to did say, well, at some point, what's the viability of our athletic department model if they're going to keep outsourcing areas of, of responsibility? I mean, I don't know if that it maybe touches on what you're talking about, but just something to think about. Chuck, did you? Yeah. Uh, uh, two things now. Uh, one, I'm going to since since uh, Jerry brought it up, I'm going to go back to the question I did, decided to defer to a private discussion, uh, the comment. Uh, and with regard to uh, elite institutions, the one example you give is one that I've never been able to find any any real result. Um, what was the practical consequence of whatever was done at Vanderbilt? Uh, and the others, you can say, well, they, they did away with the football program. They moved from Division One to Division Two. What did they do at Vanderbilt? Um, um, but uh, maybe that's not a question we need to go into. The second, I, I have a comment with regard to the board, uh, the involvement of the board. Um, um, having served in the, on this committee for 23 years, I guess, and, and uh, gone through this discussion many times with regard to the role of the board and recognizing that it is an important thing in most instances. There are some places where I, where, where I believe you have to look at, look at a, different, uh, a, a different conclusion. And they happen to be the two places I've served at. One is the University of California. To have the Board of Regents of the University of California making decisions about or getting involved in the athletic programs at the 10 institutions that they, over which they have responsibility would be a disaster. And I think the other institution in which I served, the University of Florida, would have been similar until they, the, 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 the reform occurred 10 years ago and they went from um, um, governance by a board of regents to governance on most issues of boards of trustees for the individual institutions. At that point in time, it makes sense to have that board dealing with the University of Florida uh, athletic program, but the board of regents dealing with FSU and University of Florida and South Florida, et cetera, would have made no sense at all. There's really not much symmetry among the major public systems. The, the, the chain of responsibility is defined differently. The UC is anomalous because the, um, the responsibility stream, the fiduciary connections pass through a single person, the chancellor of a given campus, to the system. And the regents have no function with regard to athletics within that system. On the other hand, the rule book says they are responsible. So you've got that potential conflict. In the case of Florida, what I found interesting was the transition from a system to the standalone campuses and an observation that may actually be implicit in your remarks to the effect that at least the line of responsibility is better defined or more clearly defined for a given uh, campus when there is a visible board that has direct responsibility. I wouldn't say, and I think no one on this project would say, that developing a board culture of responsibility is going to be easy. 
but frankly it is a splendid alternative to a situation where board members turn up in scandalous situations in the newspapers because of the relationships with athletes or coaches in violation of institutional policy and in violation of NCAA rules. And that's the, that's the issue that seems to, in, in a large sense, to motivate people who want this kind of reform. Basically, part of our reasoning is that we want boards to do a better job of governing defining policies for holding accountability structure, developing accountability structures for institutions and now happens. This is a big piece of it because this is the great anomaly in terms of what most boards actually do. Gerald gets the last question. Uh, thank all three of you for, as teams, for working with us on this and making these presentations. I just told Brett that I think I can, uh, we could end this by, what's that? Would that be? Why don't we just discuss? Yeah. We'll call the uh, session to an end. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information on the Knight Commission, please visit knightcommission.org.